Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rohrkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And today we have another mega amazing episode. We're talking about one of my favorite directors, finally. Can't believe we made it three and a half years without talking about this lovely man, Hayao Miyazaki. He has another movie coming out this year, which I am so excited about and we'll talk about very soon. But we will be celebrating the 35th anniversary of My Neighbor Totoro and Spirited Away, which is his only Oscar-winning film, which is totally absurd. But I'm excited to talk about all of these. And to do that, we have another great Miyazaki fan with us. He's been on the show before in a two-part episode so we're excited to have him back ryan mcquaid <laughs> thanks for joining us it's funny that you say two-part episode this is actually the start of a mini series that we will be doing here at oscar wilde <laughs> it's gonna go on for 45 weeks and no i'm just, I'm just kidding no <laughs> no it's wonderful to be back here and i promise not to uh make this a a horrible uh part two chaotic <laughs> edit for you guys no, it's okay. So we're excited to have you back, Ryan. And on the Paul Thomas Anderson episode that we did on Licorice Pizza in our top five favorite PTA films, you mentioned that in addition to Paul Thomas Anderson, Hayao Miyazaki and Spike Lee were your favorites. Mm-hmm. And I think we told you then, now at this point, almost two years ago, year and a half ago, that if we did a Miyazaki episode, you could come back. And now we're here. So... What is your relationship to Miyazaki? Why do you love him so much? Just no choice, right, to to have me back since it was on audio and on the record. <laughs> yes, right? exactly. By the way, to to it's written in stone to finish out the Mount Rushmore, the the fourth one is is the beloved Martin Scorsese. So that's that's the fourth oh, one. So of course, just mm, trying course. to have that on the record for later in the year when Killers uh, of the Flower comes out. I see. see. No, I just for me. There's just something so special about it. I think Nick's enthusiasm at the beginning kind of explains it because last year during the award season, you know, Del Toro was talking a lot about the art form and a lot about animated films and the kind of urgency to keep them alive. And I feel like this man has been taking that for the last 20, 30 years or whatever and making it so vital that Pixar's trying to rip out the story model and Disney's buying the rights and, you know, DreamWorks and other, you know, studios are trying to emulate the sensitivities that he has with his characters, the world building he has, the the scope that I, I just find to be so inspiring. It's really interesting when you look at his career and just how they're sort of simple stories, but they're so nuanced and they're so they're so rich in the text. And yeah, he's also like the sweetest man on the planet i don't know if you've ever uh, seen like interviews or just seen him in general he seems Mm -hmm. like a really just small innocent man that just makes these beautiful little movies and weirdly enough a master of his craft and it doesn't even feel like he gets to the scope of his flowers from everyone (laughs) because he's in an animated field as opposed to a lot of his contemporaries who are making these live action films so anytime you get to talk about miyazaki is a treat not just for, for us, but for everyone, because I truly feel like he's one of those directors at such a young age that can get you into the door into cinema, too, as well as just making like banger after banger. Right. And and making you cry like a baby. Like, Nick, did you cry a lot when you were watching these movies today that we're going to talk about? 
Surprisingly, no. Wow, soulless already at the top, and <laughs> it's just it's just me out here, listeners. Um, Tears are a common theme that we bring up here on Oscar Wilde, so. Yeah. I have to say, I did cry during Totoro. I always cry watching my neighbor Totoro. We'll get into it when we review it, but there's something about it that just instantly transports me into deep childhood memories of my own, right? That obviously aren't on screen. I didn't grow up in the same way that these two girls did or have the same experiences, right? Traveling out to the forest and meeting these amazing creatures but I don't know there's something about it that just feels so personal and I feel like when I think of Hayao Miyazaki's films Nick you're gonna laugh at this comparison but the natural pathway for me from loving Miyazaki as a child to loving Robert Altman as an adult feels (laughs) just very natural because these movies don't really have plot They just sort of move slowly and you get to know these characters. And I think it's really important for children to watch films with a lot of gray area, with characters that aren't clear protagonists and antagonists or that aren't all good or all bad, right? Especially for children. That's so important. And I feel like now when we think about films that are made for children... When you think about, like, I don't know, Secret Life of Pets or Trolls or all of these movies, they're such, like, whiz-bang, bright animated films that just are keen on assaulting the senses and not giving you a thoughtful story. And it's almost like filmmakers now who are making animated films, not all of them, of course, but a lot of them that dominate the box office or our film landscape right now, it seems like they don't trust children to have attention spans, right? Or to to be thoughtful filmgoers. And if you put a child in front of a Miyazaki film, like My Neighbor Totoro, like Kiki's Delivery Service or Spirited Away, they will feel engaged in that world, even though there are a million things flying at them all at once, because they're just beautiful, whimsical stories that grab you in from the second they start. Yeah, there's something so magical about each of his movies that I think takes me by surprise every time I watch them. Like, I'm so dazzled by the imagination, the worlds that he's creating. And we talk about with animation a lot, like, is it for kids? Is it for adults? And I think his movies are just for everybody. And you guys are talking about him in a certain way and what he's evoking and... I was going to bring this up with Spirited Away, but I'll talk about it now, is that Miyazaki had an interview with Roger Ebert, and in his review for Spirited Away, they talked about that feeling, that emptiness, those breaths that he takes in his animation, where I think in especially Disney or just American animation, you need action, you need movement, you need constant anything for kids' attentions, and Mm -hmm. that's not the case here at all, which is why I love him so much. And Miyazaki explains this moment. He goes, we have a word for that in Japanese. It's called ma. It's emptiness. It's there intentionally. And he clapped his hands, and he said, the time in between my clapping is ma. If you just have nonstop action with no breathing space at all, it's just busyness. And this also, you know, having seen past lives, and that's Korean, but... It reminded me of Inyan and the ability in other languages and other vocabularies to incorporate all of these feelings and emotions or 
moods into one word better than we can in English. And I think that is also why this Japanese animator can do so much with his language, his stroke of a pencil or in a paintbrush. And sometimes the stories aren't childish, but they're simple, yet they're so layered. And I think as you watch all of his movies, like watching most of his filmography this week, you can see patterns, you can see motifs coming up over and over again and themes and being anti-war and, you know, youths experiencing these spirits or creatures unseen by adults and how kids view adults and adults' purposes or just being one with nature. There's a lot to grasp from these films. And I think, you know, the number one thing that sticks out to me is his detail, how these worlds expand and they just continue on forever and ever. And that's not something we get with a lot of the animation we're used to as well. So I think being able to experience that time and again, I mean, some of these movies, like you said, Ryan, he's been doing this for 40 plus years, you know, the, the bulk of his directorial achievements So even going back to those earlier ones, to the ones now, to the one we'll be getting in the fall, it's just such a delight. It really is a delight. So did you guys first watch Miyazaki films when you were kids or did you come to them later? Or was it kind of a blend where you had a few that were staples or in your rotation as kids and then you visited some later on? I watched, I think I watched one or two when I was, when I was younger because I just kind of stumbled upon them. Mm-hmm. You know, no one introduced them to me. And then, yeah, I so I kind of barely remembered them when I did the dive in college. I feel like everybody does the dive around college because they're yeah. like, oh, I can watch whatever I want. And I, I was taking a lot of classes in, in school on film and everything. And I was going through genres. I, I think, you know, maybe that's why I love doing like director dives and conversations like that because, uh, you know, you start in the genre and then you see similarities, especially of somebody like I was doing a class on Westerns and we had like a whole week on Ford and um, and then Leone. And then there was just you know, and then you pick apart the different kinds of Westerns and you're able to pair things. And then I did a director class where it was just basically essentially about like, you know, handpicking films from a director. And <laughs> it was a class vote and it was between Miyazaki, Nolan and Edgar Wright. And an Edgar Wright one. No. Um, My. No. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I don't want to do this. Okay. Film Uh, college bros. And so I, so I just ended up telling, no, I ended up talking to my professor. I was like, I don't want to watch the Cornetto trilogy for the 900th time. So can I just watch the three Miyazaki films instead? And I do my essays on that. And he was just like, absolutely. And so that's what kind of started. And it was Totoro and Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away. And I was like, well, I should watch the rest. And then I was and then I was hooked. These movies are also very much like comfort food because they're under they're around two hours. Totoro is a, a, a cool, breezy 88 minutes. And you just and you just put it on and you just have a good time. You'll cry a little bit. You'll laugh. You'll go through the range of emotions. And then you, you put it back on the shelf and you're like, okay, it's like a good book. Put it back on the shelf and you're like, I'll pick this back up in six months when I need, I need to find that sort of inspiration. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then Sophia, yeah, when you were talking about like the state of, state of animated cinema, 
yeah, I was thinking in my head as you were talking about like, uh, what does Hayao Miyazaki think about uh, Super Mario Brothers? You know what I mean? Like, what does he <laughs> think about these? No, but like Illumination oh, yeah. is a studio that is the antithesis, I believe, to Ghibli. Not Absolutely. just his work, but everybody at Ghibli. Because those stories, like, could you imagine if Illumination made like Grave of the Fireflies? Pixar can't even do that anymore. You know, it feels like these filmmakers are of, uh, sadly, of a dying breed because everybody at Pixar, their movies aren't connecting nearly as much. You look at a movie like Elemental that came out this year. That's a movie that is, I mean, it could work for you maybe if you want to. And it's trying to be, you know, about the elements and nature and the world and build on relationships. But it just doesn't, it feels artificial. It doesn't feel authentic. And the, the, that's the thing about it. Miyazaki is it it doesn't feel forced you know it feels like it comes from the heart and then and there's a soul to it you know as opposed to a movie you call soul it's like (laughs) and so I think that the state of animation is horrible and and it's sad because he's about to walk away from it and you know they always say you want to leave it better than when you found it and he kind of really brought it up right with also classic Disney obviously and other studios but in his time it's got the the genre has gone through so many peaks and valleys that it's as he's about to release this last film it's at its most vulnerable because you get maybe one great animated film a year maybe this year right now it's spider-verse but even spider-verse as much as i love that movie that's a lot of quick cuts and all this editing and lots Mm -hmm. of colors and now that has a great story to it so it doesn't fall in the like super mario make a billion dollars you know despicable me kind of crap but it's kind of doing both but it's still not just like simple storytelling simple visuals and mostly these wonderfully layered female characters from a male director that we don't see a lot i love 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 the girls in his movies and i feel like just to like think about my childhood with Miyazaki. So we had My Neighbor Totoro and Kiki's Delivery Service on VHS. So those were the ones that were in my rotation. And it was just nice, I think, to be able to, without even realizing it. When I was seven years old, I wasn't thinking about film in the way that I do now, obviously, I wasn't like, wow, it's so empowering to see myself on screen or to feel connected to these characters. But that was what was happening, whether I recognized it immediately or not, or saw the depth in that. But it was just, I think it's it's nice to see sibling relationships or to see these girls who are trying to find themselves and figure that out when they're at an age where they're, you know, children or like preteens, teenagers, like there aren't a lot of films around for kids that allow them to feel that they're understood in that way for the good and the bad for what makes them kids. And I think what I also loved in watching these growing up was that kids in these movies play, you see them playing and being kids. He doesn't dumb these characters down at all, right? He just lets them be kids, but he also allows them to figure out the complex emotions that they're discovering or that they have to come to terms with through these stories. So I loved these. I'm such a stickler normally with any kind of 
film not in the English language, that I need subtitles. I don't want them to be dubbed. But for any of the Miyazaki films, I'm totally fine watching the dubbed versions. That might be sacrilegious to some people, but I think because I watched these when I was seven years old and wasn't reading the subtitles and watched the dubbed versions, they do have a nice place in my heart. And now I sort of watch them interchangeably. Sometimes I'll watch a subtitled version. Other times, like for, I've brought up Kiki's Delivery Service so many times, but that's, again, one of my favorites and a classic from when I was growing up. That one I nearly always watch dubbed because those characters' voices, like the voice work is just so, just hits me right in the heart. It's so nostalgic. Well, the whole dubbed, subbed question is interesting because I logged on to Max for this pod and found the movies and I clicked on the subtitles to change the audio and there was no other option. It was just English. I was like, what? Does Max only have the dubbed versions? So here we go. I'm watching multiples of these movies in the dubbed formats, which I never do. I'm always a subbed guy Mm -hmm. growing up. I think the first time I saw these movies, I didn't grow up with them. God, I wish I had, you know, having watched Totoro again, I was like, why didn't I grow up with this? I want my kids to know Totoro inside and out Mm -hmm. throughout their childhood. And then I noticed once I finish a couple of these movies on the bottom, it's like, you may like and it's like the same movie and the, it has a little caption <laughs> Japanese audio. <laughs> I was like, wait, <laughs> they had both. I searched for the movie and there was only one that came up and I was like, okay, fine. And I kind of just accepted it. So yeah, this was the first time that I sort of interacted with the dubbed versions and I didn't hate it. You know, it makes for easier watching. But I really do want to go back to the subbed versions, especially in theaters. You know, we have Fathom Events and Studio Ghibli, the the Ghibli Fest, I think, for kids that's playing in theaters worldwide. And they're doing different movies during different weeks. So Mononoke is coming up next week. And I'm like, wait, I just watched it, but I think I want to go again. But every day is a different version. But yeah, maybe at this point they're interchangeable for me, but I do have to say I've experienced the worst voiceover in animation history <laughs> during one of these movies. What? Which one? I need to know. Entirely took me out. I wanted to ask at the end of the pod, which we can do here too. It was Anna Paquin in Laputa in Castle in the Sky. If you haven't <laughs> experienced this, I recommend a short trial window but switch it over to the sub because her accent changed from Australian to British to American so many times. I don't know how old she was when she did this, but it was so distracting. I wanted, I wanted to turn it off. There was a movie we had growing up. I can't remember which one it was a VHS, but the preview for castle in the sky played Mm -hmm. before it. And I remember it was like with Anna Paquin, you know, Mm -hmm. she was like coming off of, an Oscar win from the piano, and she was like the ch- one of the child actors. But yeah, it was not great. Ryan, what's your <laughs> worst format of choice? First of all, <laughs> <The> worst. I, <laughs> the worst one I always feel like is in Ponyo, and it's um, anytime Matt Damon and Tina Fey kind of speak because it's because it's like oh. it's just these kids yeah. and everything, and then you're like, it's the Thirty Rock cast. 
Um, you know, it's, it just oh feels God. really weird and out of place. <laughs> and I'm like, I think you guys are in the different movies. But yeah, my format of choice, I'm just lazy. So the easiest way for me to, to watch them is in dubbed. Mm-hmm. When I'm watching a foreign language film, and I love foreign language films, but I'm focusing so much of my energy trying to read and, and see the dialogue and everything that I lose the visuals sometimes or I miss out. And it takes me multiple times to have to like grasp everything that I'm watching. So I think it's just better for me so I can see the totality of the film that way. That being said, if I had a choice, I would probably do subs because of the fact that they do change dialogue and they change sort of uh, inflections and intentions and tone in certain things when you're watching them. Not just in in just animes, but in any foreign language film, if they do that, so I, I like them both. But I prefer dub just right now because of the fact that I got I got I got to just watch them. I want to watch them, and and some and for these two movies that we're talking about today, the dub versions are actually really good. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the beauty of Miyazaki is my friend loves anime, and he said you have to watch them in dubbed because that's just how you I guess experience anime and those shows. But I don't think that's the case with his films. I think subbed is just as beautiful as dubbed, and it's not like you lose anything. I agree about you know words being changed or intonations, maybe changing the way you experience the world even. And with international movies, I feel like you get into a rhythm, and by the end of the movie, you don't realize your eyes have been jumping so much. And it's this cadence that you, I think, just subconsciously realize that you've seen the entirety of the movie and the frame and that's how i feel about miyazaki films too even though there's so much to see and again we'll get into the depths with especially spirited away but yeah i don't i don't mind it and then i think just before we talk about these two movies the boy and the heron miyazaki's next film his last film is opening the Toronto International Film Festival, which is very exciting. And Ryan, you're going to TIFF this year. How excited are you to see this film there? One, what a terrible U.S. title. Just going to put that out. I just... Mm -hmm. How do you live with so good? Such a good title. Mm -hmm. That's like Mm -hmm. switching from soggy bottom to licorice pizza, in my opinion. Oh, (laughs) I'm so pro licorice pizza. Mm, I'm so pro soggy bottom. Soggy mm. bottom makes me think of British Bake Off. Yeah. (laughs) That's not a negative. It's not a negative. No, it's not a negative. It's not a negative. It's just like an association. Shade the British Bake Off on the Miyazaki episode. (laughs) Two lovely things. Sorry sorry to all my London PTA doing Great British Bake Off. Now that's something I would... Yeah, you do it in watch. Do it in the vein of a uh, of Phantom Thread. That's how he would do it. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I uh, it makes the festival worth it for me. Uh, this is my number one anticipated film of the year, and I've said this before, but it's it's gonna be so sad watching it because whenever you see it, that's it. That's the end of a filmography. I mean, guys, some of our favorite directors of all time are about to stop making movies. Think about that. I know. Mm-hmm. Think about like Spielberg and Scorsese are are pretty much almost putting up the the spurs soon, and they're gonna be they're, they're gonna be done making movies. I... Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm like getting Sophie <laughs> in the fills right now. But like, but the thing about this one is we can expect the finality. 
the thing with them and a lot of other directors is you never know, right? And they're all chasing time and whatnot. And Miyazaki's like firmly just being like, yeah, I'm done here. I'm good. And then the description of why he's making this movie, because he wants to leave this film behind for his grandson. So he has something to remember him by. That's so heartbreaking. Imagine if your grandparent left you something like that behind that also i want to know what the grandkids uh, review of the film is uh, when it's done uh, but but it, it it just it's an end of a career and so of course for me as a, a person that loves this director loves directors filmographies in total it's gonna be so surreal and i'm excited to see it i know that some of my friends have already like I'm so jealous you're gonna see her or whatnot, but I'm I I don't even think even when I sit in the seat to watch it I'll be emotionally prepared because even just thinking about it it kind of makes it it makes me sad. Yeah, not that I don't want to see it, but it's one of those things where I and I've talked about this with both of you guys before about how I like having certain films in directors' filmographies that I haven't watched yet because it kind of especially those who have passed on right like Robert Altman. Like, I have not seen Popeye yet. I like having something there so that there isn't an end to it for me. It's like I have one more. I have two more that I need to watch. So knowing that when I sit down to watch this, it will be the last time I see a new Miyazaki film. That's just a lot for me to take in. So I would like to say I'm going to prolong this as long as possible. But I'm also just so excited to see it. And my anticipation is so high that I also know that this painful moment for me is going to occur. The first screening that takes place in New York, I'm going to be there where I'm going to try to be there. And I'm trying to stay away from anything about this movie. Like I'm not reading anything about it. And Ghibli, they've been very tight lipped about this, right? Like they're not releasing a trailer. There are no stills for this movie. It's really just that poster And that's all we have. So I'm going to try to keep it that way for as long as I can uh, before seeing it. Because again, yeah, my anticipation is is very, very high. And I know it's going to be an emotional viewing experience. It's based off this book that Miyazaki adored his entire life. How do you live? And I read enough about it to know that it's not really connected to the book. It's his own version of that story. And I thought about reading the book and I was like, no, I want to go into this blind and just have this experience because it's his last movie. And I remember thinking back 10 years ago now to The Wind Rises and wondering if that was going to be his last movie. And then we got the reports of he's working on another. And I was like, oh, phew, thank God. Like we can we can hold out a little bit longer. But the fact that these movies take so long, too, is just a whole different beast because he is in there and he is not only proud of that, but we're proud of that, that he's the one animating, drawing these frames, these cells one by one. And he does thousands of these for each movie, which is more work than I would ever dream of accomplishing for a movie. What an overachiever. Right? He is a Capricorn. (laughs) (laughs) But then we get these beauties and it's like, you know, you do you. They're going to stand the test of time. And now I'm reminded of this quote from Barbie, Barbie talking to Ruth and saying, I want to be more than the idea. I want to be the idea maker. And Miyazaki is that idea maker. It's kind of both, but 
The Boy and the Heron, the first time an animated or Japanese film has open tiff. Excited about that. The Wind Rises, Spirited Away, and Princess Mononoke have previously been there. So crossing my fingers that maybe this can win like a People's Choice Award or be on the top three Mm -hmm. because none of those have done that before, which, come on, voters, let's do this right. Spirited Away just, I mean, that was the big international phenomenon and was the highest grossing Japanese film ever until Demon Slayer came about. I still haven't seen that from 2020. Sounds like something to put on the watch list. I think it's on the watch list. It's just kind of sitting there, there. collecting yeah. dust. But there's a whole <laughs> series behind it, and I need to, like, I don't know, in my completionist mode, experience mm-hmm. that first, which I know is going to take a while. Anyway, this movie grossed $13.2 million on its opening weekend, the biggest Ghibli opening ever, and it set an IMAX record. I was like, IMAX? We're getting a Miyazaki in IMAX? <laughs> oh, my God. Move oh. over, Nolan time right sorry <laughs> bye yeah. no tom cruise bye nolan it's gonna be um, him and him and, and dune. marty honestly yeah. dune too did you see the dune reports of five to six weeks yeah what's the movie that's not getting oh the marvels they're not getting any imax because good of job denis Villeneuve. kick mm-hmm. out that mcu garbage good job but let the boy in the heron in please just just for a day or two uh, <laughs> if we had imax this year that included Oppenheimer, Killers of the Flower Moon, and The Boy and the Heron. And Dune, too. Be, yeah. I will be very happy. That's, yeah. <laughs> good job, IMAX. Really good job. Mm-hmm. Can we get, like, one Barbie screening in IMAX? Just to see Barbie Land oh, in IMAX? Please. I would love IMAX. Yeah. Like, I would love that. I mean, like, it doesn't have to take all the Oppenheimer screenings, but just, like, one at, like, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Nobody else has to be in there. I'll just go and see it. I'll I'll bite mm-hmm. the bullet, you know, and go see Barbie and IMAX. Just do that. You should see every movie in IMAX, to be fair. Okay, so let's get into My Neighbor Totoro. Description here. This acclaimed animated tale follows schoolgirl Satsuki and her younger sister May as they settle into an old country house with their father and wait for their mother to recover from an illness in an area hospital. As the sisters explore their new home, they encounter and befriend playful spirits in their house in the nearby forest, most notably the massive, cuddly creature known as Totoro. This, of course, was directed by Hayao Miyazaki. Voice work here was done by Noriko Hidaka, Chika Sakamoto, Shigesato Itoi, and Hitoshi Takagi. And in the dubbed version, we have Dakota and Elle Fanning, Tim Daly, and Pat Carroll. So both Miyazaki movies we're going to talk about today have kind of odd release structures. They always do where they release in different years and different countries. And for this one, it was originally released on a double bill with Grave of Fireflies in 1988, which can you imagine the emotional Mm -hmm. journey of this double bill? (laughs) That's sick. That's a sick thing to do. It's a It's a lot. Oh my God. Oh my god, yeah. that's horrible. I couldn't do those together. No. Both of them are bad. The villain of this movie is illness. Like, that's the thing about this. Like, cancer or some people think t- tuberculosis. Wait, like, now it's... I'm remembering. I did cry. When she finds the corn with the note on the windowsill, I lost it. it says mommy. And the mom looks mommy. out the window. Oh yeah. my god. Yeah. Yeah. You'd see that or you were really hungry. <laughs> 
We are Midwesterners. Corn is very important. You're like, oh my God, somebody put corn in the movie. Corn. (laughs) Oh my God, shucked. But then after that double bill, then in 1989, Streamline Pictures released an English language dub for use on Japan Airlines flights, which is also funny. It's like they made a dubbed version specifically for airplane viewing. So an odd little release there. But then the dubbed version was distributed theatrically by 50th Street Films in April of 1993. So this is also the 30th anniversary of the U.S. version um, in Mm. theaters. So exciting little anniversary note there. But what do you guys think of My Neighbor Totoro? Imagine taking five years to travel across the Pacific. Like what? That's a long plane Oof. ride. No, this movie's amazing. Who doesn't love this movie? For Totoro, it's always funny that like what creatures or what characters become the face of an entire studio. And mm-hmm. and Totoro is like the mascot of Ghibli or he's this cute cuddly thing. And you always think about like, oh my god, yeah, he's such an adorable creature and he's so you know such a great design and the sound design with him and everything is is extraordinary and you're always kind of in the back of your mind you're like yeah 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 yeah, it's it's really cute or whatnot and then you kind of move on and then you watch the film and you forget oh yeah this movie is sad as hell and it's also just baked in the familiar of anyone that's been a child and especially if you're a child and you and and, and you're a, a girl and you're and you're a girl and you had a sister and if you had a sister what that is all like i was watching the film last night with my wife and she was just a mess the whole time every little thing but there was particularly the moments where rasaski and may are arguing because of the frustrations of the fact that their mom is sick and there's a note that comes in that it's delayed that she's not going to come they start yelling at each other the shot of the movie for me is this really it's like a five second little clip and Sasuke's laying in her room completely shattered on the ground around like her toys are in you know this one area and on the complete opposite side of the of the house is May in the exact same way but in the opposite direction with all of her toys and just how even in moments where they're at each other's throat or they're angry or frustrated or over each other they're still the same they're still the same because they are connected through their parents, time, relationships, everything, their childhood. And that sequence where Sasuke is having to run after and find May is so desperate that she runs to Totoro to find her. This movie is so great because, you know, you can essentially see it as a fantasy if you want, but then you can also see it as a massive coping mechanism for these two girls that are going through something that no child should go through which is to see their parents sick and vice versa no parent should ever see their child sick and Sashki having that moment with granny where she's like this happened before she got a cold or or the flu before and then she never came home it's completely devastating just on every emotional level but then also it's so playful like we see may by herself because she's not old enough to go to school yet so we see her early in the film And we see her go down this sort of rabbit hole, almost like Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass sort of sort of thing. And that's the great thing about Miyazaki movies is that they also these great fairy tales and they're tied to classic fairy tales in a lot of ways. But it's his spin on it. And 
when she finds Totoro, it's just such a euphoric feeling. I want to ride a cat bus everywhere. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's my goal in 2023, is to ride a cat bus everywhere. I'm putting that on my spirit board, because I think that that design gets underlooked in how kind of wild and different it is. Like, that's the great thing about Miyazaki, is like, there's something really cool about it, but also kind of dangerous to it. It's it's complex, and that's what I, I love about it. So, yeah, it's a pretty good movie. I, I cried a couple times. I cried with the corn. I cry every time when there's that pause when they think that they found May in the water. And that little pause every time she's like, you know, is this her shoe? And you're like, thank God. It's like, you know that it's not. But then you kind of forget that it isn't. And then it's got the most euphoric in credit song of all time. You know, where you just you're dancing out of the theater, even though you're like, that was the saddest ending ever. Right. Did we just watch that? So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a, it's a masterpiece. I love this movie. Just reiterating what I talked about before with Miyazaki's animation is it's just real. It's layered. It has these real experiences. There's the sisterly bond. Like, yes, sickness is the villain, but there's also no villain. Like, it's just a it's a fact of life that the mom is sick. And I mm-hmm. think it's real how Satsuki gets upset when she says mom had a cold before and she hasn't come back from the hospital and here she is again and dad are you lying to me like what's happening with mom I think she's getting worse and those feelings of dread and not knowing are so real with anyone any family member any friend that you've had in the hospital or that's sick and you just don't know and I think as a kid you especially don't know those complexities to medicine and what all that means and how your parents maybe try to shield you from those realities too so like yes i you know there there's a part of anime that i don't really like or get and it's like the exasperation to the sound effects and how they copy each other but i think that's what separates this from a lot of the animation that we've consumed too as kids is you know these sisters are they're not mad at each other they're not at odds with each other they're they learn from each other they're braver because of being together and being able to see Totoro and all these other spirits and the way the dad supports them and granny Mm -hmm. and she goes oh yeah the soot sprites they're real they you know if you laugh they'll go away if you if you make this a home and so they do see them and the dad doesn't say oh you're just a kid And, you know, you'll grow up out of that phase. That's not what they do here. And I think that's what's so special about this movie in particular, about My Neighbor Totoro, is that Totoro is a distraction from the mom being in the hospital, but it's also not a distraction. It's just a way for them to cope. And, you know, when when they do the dance around the seeds and they create this tree and Satsuki rides the cat bus and finding May and, you know, it it changes to May on on the destination. There are just so many little bits and pieces that shows Miyazaki understands life. And this was 35 years ago. You know, he wasn't this old man looking back. He was just in his prime, in his filmmaking prime with, we didn't even know what he had to come yet. Mononoke, Spirited Away, The Wind Rises. Oh, it's just... I think one thing about his filmography is like I rewatched Howl's Moving Castle recently and 
had a totally different view on that movie that I thought I did. So you can revisit these movies throughout your life and grab certain things from them that you hadn't before. And I think that's special about Totoro is, I think, beyond Ponyo. I'm not a huge fan of Ponyo, but this one particularly is really for kids. But as an adult, those mature themes just develop more and more. Yeah. So this is my favorite Miyazaki film. I love my neighbor Totoro. I think it it's exactly what you said, Nick. Like I visited this movie at so many points in my life and I get something new out of it with every stage of life or as time passes. It becomes a richer experience, yes, because I think about it and understand it differently, but it also takes me back to my childhood in really special ways and it makes me nostalgic but it also just makes me think of that time and specific memories from that time differently and it's a remarkable thing that he does with this movie and I think it really did begin my love of slow cinema (laughs) because you can look at this movie and think nothing really happens doesn't have we were talking about Pixar earlier it doesn't have this restrictive highly constructed script where certain things have to happen at certain points in time and there are specific villains who achieve certain things and they have to at this moment you have to learn this lesson here and I love a lot of those films but this is just a different experience it's there's it's so warm and has so much whimsy to it but what I love about it is that Miyazaki in making this film he talked about how he wanted to make something specifically Japanese His earlier films felt much more fantastical or in worlds that were outside of Japan. And he wanted to make something that showed the everyday magic of Japanese life. And I think that is just so beautiful. And like you were talking about with how their dad takes them so seriously. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is when he learns about Totoro. And like they tell him about Totoro and he doesn't really bat an eye. He doesn't say, no, you're, you know, you're being silly. What's that? He says, oh, he must be king of the forest. It's such a beautiful thing to see the children taken so seriously throughout this film. And I I think that, yes, growing up as an older sister, like watching this movie, I always connected to Satsuki and understood her and I think even now watching it I understand her and her relationship with May and in I think feeling like you always regardless of how old your younger sister is like you are always the protector like you always have that instinct as an older sibling to be the one who is there for them and so when May is lost that moment in the film is so heartbreaking but it's also because he's so good at oscillating between this warm, adventurous spirit and these moments of sadness. And when those moments of sadness come, I think they hit even harder because you've experienced so much joy maybe two minutes ago. So I think it's just, it's a really masterful work and it feels like the world in a similar way to Spirited Away, it just feels infinite. There are just so many possibilities that could spring to life with every frame. And I love that. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, I'll use the M word too, masterpiece. It's okay to use it. 
<laughs> sparingly, yeah, yes. Sparingly. Not every movie, <laughs> you know. But I agree with both of you. I mean, like this, especially with the dad character, this go around, really under, really seeing that. I think in a lot of movies, but just in, in just kind of Western sort of society, we strip away the innocence of kids so early. We we take away like the the wonder of like even something like Santa Claus. I think away from kids way too quickly because there's something magical about being a little naive still, but also not having to see the world so much through an adult's lens. And Sashki definitely sees and knows what's going on with her mom. May kind of doesn't. And that's the beauty of it is that instead of living in that very harsh, very sad, unpredictable dilemma of what's going to happen with their mom they have to find moments still where they can laugh and wonder and the dad doesn't strip that away and then he uses it as an opportunity to then also teach his girls about the spirits the culture that they live in the world that they live in there's that moment where they they bow to the trees for protecting them and it's almost like this family needs that not just for these girls but they need it for this moment because they are going through something that's extremely difficult. They're in this new place. The dad's far away. Literally, a, a, a stranger is taking care of the is taking care of one of them while the other goes to school. So it there's a lot being put on their shoulders, and this weight for these girls is this really fantastic escape. And it's not used as like a mechanism just for the oh their cares and worries go away because as we see throughout the film. There is a lot of drama and there is a lot of frustration and anxiety and that flows through them and they get mad at one another. And it's okay to get mad at one another because you're kids. And so you're, you're going to say things that are, that are going to make you cry. I mean, when May cries uh, and she goes, she's so mean, you feel that because it's like, of course she's going to be that because even as older she may be, she's still not mature enough to even still see that, you know, to be able to hold all those emotions in there. So it doesn't then bleed down to her sister. And that scene when she's next to granny and she breaks down, may sees that it's like sort of the inverse of how you protect your younger sister. She starts going, well, then I have to get this corn to my mom because these vegetables signified from her aspect that this will make her better. And then my sister won't cry anymore. And that's why she goes and does that. And it's completely devastating. It's just it, just realizing that, that the roles reverse. And then by the end, they realize that they have to do this together. And the great moment where the mom is sitting there and she's like, I think I see the girls in the tree. And, she, and, and the dad once again goes, maybe you did. And then they look at that, the corn. And so it's also about it's generational and how a mother's instinct note she knows her girls and the connection that they have. And I was a mess. I'll tell you that. I was like <laughs> I was a mess when she was just when May was just running up that hill. And what's so great is like the nature mm-hmm. is so it, I mean, we cannot express this enough of just how Miyazaki makes this small little community, but it feels so vast to a little girl. It is the world, but it is a small mm-hmm. part of our world. But it, it is this playhouse, but it's also this 
really scary place. Like when she's trying to catch up after the news of her mom and she gets lost. You are so scared for her and for May. But yet you kind of know it's going to be okay because it's, you know, everybody knows kind of everybody there. But yeah, it just, it's like Nick, you were saying, all in the familiar, right? It's all, it's all from childhood, from instinct. It's not even in this fantastical sort of story. He grounds it. It's not taken to like other stories, like, like House Moving Castle and even Spirit Away when we talk about it. It's taken to some levels. Like he starts moving up, <laughs> up the stairs to the next level, the next level, the next level. This is just like, I'm going to keep it base level. I'm going to have these spirits. They're going to mean a lot to them. But really what I'm going to base it on is these two girls and them growing up. Both of these movies start with the families moving, you know, going to this new city, this new place where the children, these little girls in both of the movies, the protagonists feel lost and alone. And, you know, she meets this boy in the beginning of Totoro and he's like completely embarrassed and you know girls ew but they don't know anybody and it's this new world so they grasp onto nature and these other elements maybe to help them along but you know now at my age <laughs> I'm like they're going to the middle of nowhere get me out of here it's beautiful but you know we sorry dad we can't live here <laughs> <laughs> see meanwhile i i need this i need i need like a week week away from yes, new york and i need to go take a nap on totoro in the woods <laughs> me too like doesn't it just look so nick you talked about that word ma of the the breath mm-hmm. and i love that of how like when may is napping on totoro and you see his chest rise and fall Miyazaki spends so much time here of her just with Totoro here and it's wordless like almost you just are watching them together and I love that he takes his time there because it is just so pleasant and you get the sense that he is her protector in that moment that he's there to protect the girls and I love the little mini Totoros that she chases out into the forest and yeah, you mentioning the her running. I love the way that his characters run. There's just something about it. I can't explain it, but I just I love the way that they move. It is so mm-hmm. so cute and so like full of energy and joy and just this adventurous spirit that his characters have. I I love it. I get so happy whenever I see his girls start running. And with the cat bus too because I do have to mention the cat bus. I love when the cat bus arrives because we have this great moment of them waiting at the bus stop and when Totoro jumps up (laughs) and lands. One of my favorite moments. It's so, so fun. And you just, you get those droplets on them. But then the cat bus arriving, it's just like, how does he come up with these creations? They are so imaginative. And as a cat person, I would love to ride the cat bus and it would make me much more excited to take public transit to the office every day if I had a cat bus. (laughs) The seeds from the little Totoros and the way that plays into this tree and growing with this experience to May falling on Totoro and in a different movie, this would be terrifying. Totoro would be a monster or something they have to 
tame, but I love mm-hmm. that Miyazaki just tilts everything and plays with your idea of expectation. And that's every single movie is that there's an adventurous element. You know, we have Cat Bus, we have all of these different theme park rides sort of you know in castle in the sky we have those little fly planes and spirited away we'll have more but it's fun how they're adventurous they're just things you could never imagine and he goes there and he takes it Mm -hmm. down a different path that you would never have chosen and that is the joy and the beauty and why we revisit these over and over and over makes me so happy just talking about them (laughs) Just a happy place, yeah. Oh, yeah. Such a nice little escape. Even though, yeah, it is sad, right? Like, this movie always makes me really sad. Especially with the corn and the relationship with the mom and just the the sense of unknowing that's there, right? And the lack of closure that you both talked about, I think, is really important to the story. But it's just, it's one that I think, because it feels so true to life, yet it has these moments of magic woven throughout it's just such a delight to revisit every time it does leave though i think you with a bit of optimism Uh that even if when she goes home and let's say there's a a relapse or something in in her illness that this experience in this place is the right place for them and Mm -hmm. that the girls are the strongest they've ever been so it does leave you with that sort of euphoric feeling of they will be all right and for me, it's a, it's real interesting. Like when Sashki is making lunch for everyone, it, you know, you have to kind of grow up a little quick, but not too quick because then the innocence is gone. So that, you know, to me personally, and that happened, you know, a bit to me is that, you know, my, my, when I was younger, my mom had cancer. And so I had to really learn early, you know, how to, to cook and clean and do all these things that, not necessarily most kids like in my neighborhood were doing because there is that uncertainty and she ended up beating it and was fine. But there's still, there were moments where even when they were trying to shield it or trying to get the kids to avoid thinking about it all the time, you're still a a human still at heart. So, and that connection is something's off and a kid always knows when something is off, <laughs> you can't really put anything past kids. In previous jobs, I worked with a lot of kids and, you know, they can smell bullshit a mile away because there's not a lot of cynicism still in there and in and, and whatnot. So they're, they're hyper alert. And I just I, I think that, you know, for myself, at least I knew something was was wrong with my mom, but I didn't let it stop me from being a kid and growing up and everything. And I think that for these girls, they have each other. So they lean on each other so much that by the end, those in credit scenes are, I mean, yeah, it's the very joyous song, but it's, but it's also like, Oh, thank God. Like, like this was the right place, the right time. It ultimately worked out for them. And I think they will be okay. There's other Miyazaki movies where you kind of end and you're like, I don't know where those characters are going to go. That'll be an interesting thing to think about. I think, when we talk about Spirited Away, that ending is very that that one to me. I'm always left like, what happened? Did we like what was any of it real? Was it all a dream? Did Christopher Nolan make this movie? Uh, was it a dream? Jeez. Was it a dream? <laughs> um, but but this one it feels very much like still again grounded in reality for me. That by the mm-hmm. end it's like, 
oh my god again as you're even as you're like joyously walking out you're like oh my god the mom went home oh my god you know (laughs) normalcy got back into their lives a little bit so if you could give this movie one oscar besides animated feature or international feature what would it be original song i want i want that Mm. song nominated yeah it's a good pick come on there aren't you know there aren't songs like that that get nominated it's always like written by randy newman i don't i don't you know if it's from an animated movie i don't need all that like just something simple and joyous could you imagine it being performed people would have such a smile on their face like yeah need that that's what i would give it original original song but also i mean maybe i mean i'm just being dumb but like picture would have probably been right there too why didn't i just say that Mm -hmm. but anyway original song was the first thing that came (laughs) to mind that's also my answer it's hard to say score because my top four miyazaki films all have incredible and unique Mm -hmm. scores that just blow me away and totoro is there too but yeah it's that ending dun 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 and it just mm-hmm. stuck in your head for hours and days after you watch this movie. So for doing 1988, the song Let the River Run from Working Girl won. I think Totoro could be up there. And there were only three nominees that year. So they were locking in, in something apparently. But if we did 93, <laughs> that's Streets of Philadelphia from Philadelphia. Oh, no. Bruce Springsteen. Can't take Bruce's no. Oscar. Sorry, Carly. Sorry. <laughs> It's. I think Totoro could could definitely hold its own. I think Bruce Springsteen should perform the Totoro song at the '93 Oscars. (laughs) Oh my God! Stop. Can you be with Totoro? Totoro. (laughs) What about you, Sophia? What's your What's your one Oscar? My Oscar is Best Director for Miyazaki. (laughs) I'm going there. We need. Like, he deserves a Best Director Oscar. Mm-hmm. I think that the Oscars need to, you know, in certain circumstances, I think they need to look towards directors of animated films. I think that here he constructs such a beautiful story. He takes a lot of risks and he made something really personal. So I would give him Best Director. But I agree with you guys. I think the music in the film is phenomenal. All of his movies, I think, have great scores, but here, like, I just love the song and the and how the score is used throughout. I feel like it just feels like another character in the film. It brings this world to life. But yeah, I mean, because I love this film so much, I have to give Miyazaki the Oscar. The sound design, too, I want to point mm-hmm. out. Like, just the whole, so good. so mm-hmm. good. So yeah, if we were going to go with just the music, but then also, yeah, there's all the sounds and Mm-hmm. Everything that goes with it. Yeah, it's yeah. great work. Okay, now on to Spirited Away. Description here. Ten-year-old Chihiro and her parents stumble upon a seemingly abandoned amusement park. After her mother and father are turned into giant pigs, Chihiro meets the mysterious Haku, who explains that the park is a resort for supernatural beings who need a break from their time spent in the earthly realm, and that she must work there to free herself and her parents. We have voice work here by Rumi Hiraji, Miu Irino, and Mari Natsuki, and dubbed by Davy Chase, Suzanne Plachette, and Jason Marsden. Davy Chase, do you know who this is and what she's famous for? (laughs) This was Samara from The Ring. What? Iconic. 
She has no dialogue in that. You know, playing Chihiro and Samara. Iconic filmography. Talk about range. Maybe she learned, you know, a bit about the spirits, filming Spirited Away, and then brought that to the ring. <laughs> I was thinking about that, yeah. That's good. So for the release of this film, it was released theatrically in Japan in July 2001. And then Disney's English language dub of the film premiered at TIFF in September 2002. And then it was released theatrically in the U.S. later that month. And this is, if you're looking at Miyazaki's filmography, this is the award winner. It won Best Film at the Japanese Academy Awards. It also won The Golden Bear at Berlin. And it won Best Animated Feature at the Academy Awards. It was the first hand-drawn film not in the English language to win. So yes, this is Miyazaki's sole Oscar but I think this is one of his best, most creative, and most enduring movies. This was just a phenomenon when it came out. I think like Totoro, it's the story of adventure and finding yourself and understanding who you are as Chihiro. And when she becomes Sen and remembering who she was um, in friendships and standing up to evil people like Yubaba. And, you know, we still get those lovable creatures along the way. We we meet these questionable spirits like No Face and befriending them. I think, you know, when you, as a kid, meet something you don't know, a lot of times you distance yourself or, you know, want to shield yourself. And that's also something that his characters don't do. They accept new presences, you know, not necessarily people in this case and take them in and they're nice to them and i think that's what shocks me here a lot is you know letting people or animals or creatures in in the end they reward you back you know it's treating people like you would want to be treated and and ryan you mentioned before you know how they're fairy tales in a different way in in miyazaki's own way and i think this one more so than Totoro can relate to, you know, a structure and we go from A to B, but there are so many other layers within that. And that's the joy of this movie, particularly, you know, going into the bathhouse and seeing all those details. There's so much wonder in every frame that you want to fully experience it. I think this was the first Miyazaki film I had ever seen too. And you know, the one that won the Oscar, and I never took a class on it, but I think it probably was in college and wondering who this director was, and then from there going into his filmography. But when did you both first see Spirited Away, and what's your relationship with it, and I guess where it fits in his filmography for you? Uh, for me, I, I saw Spirited Away toward, uh, like like I said, I saw it in, in college. It wasn't one of the first ones I saw, but it was, it was definitely like the fifth or sixth one I saw. I mean, the one of the first ones I ever saw was, was Hal's moving castle. And I love that movie, but I remember, I remember this one being like, well, the reason why we don't like Hal's moving castle is because we love spirited away. And this sort of like having to, having to compare both of them because they're these mm-hmm. two epic fantasies with these giant sort of set piece worlds. Right. Cause you have this giant bathhouse. And then you have literally a moving castle, right? So the Mojo Dojo Casa House. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Howl's Mojo Dojo Casa House. <laughs> but also, too, like people were like, this is an original work. 
that's an adaptation. You know, people just kind of pitying him. And I was like, shut up. I don't care. These are both really great movies. This one kind of reminds me a lot of mentioned the fairy tale aspects again this this does feel very alice in wonderland but then also was very like almost wizard of oz like when i was watching and i was feeling a lot of very wizard of oz like dorothy in a dream you know having to to find a way to get out of this world right and there's these evil witches and there's these friends that she makes along the way there's these things that she has to do and obviously it's very much within culture and and different than that but that's i felt re-watching this i was feeling a lot of film influences and so it weirdly feels like a you know his sort of love letter to these movies that he loves so much that had these sort of fantastical elements that then he was able to create his own space in i think from the beginning like those pigs are terrifying you know the idea of of someone eating food to the point of stuffing their face and them turning into this giant pig it's insane but her her having the agency to be already like no this is not good again a child being the one that is kind of is the smartest character even though she's still naive enough to be like hey my parents aren't making the smartest decision here you know and yet it's a complete coming of age story and it's one also too about becoming strong and confident within yourself and not being so reliant, I think, even on your parents. Because she has to she has to grow apart from them. And it's weird to say that because she's like 10 years old in the movie. So, you know, it's very much already like, it's almost the opposite of Totoro. It's like, that movie's like, keep your innocence. It's great. And this movie is like, grow the hell up. Because you kind of need to. Because the world's a, a very sick, dirty place. And everyone around you is trying to like stab you in the back. So it's almost like a very like cynical turn for Miyazaki, which I kind of appreciate. But um, yeah, I mean, that bathhouse is like, good Lord. What a, what a just a, a place that feels so grand and yet very claustrophobic. Like you think of all the places that she has to go, the little doors and the crevices. And like, even when that, you know, that giant spirit, right? She has to like clean up all this mess and use the bath tokens and everything. You could just feel the dirt. And her getting sucked in by the water and, and, and everything there. And it's, I think, his most, like, throw everything visually at the wall and it all sticks kind of film. And I, so I can understand people getting it from that angle. But there is also this this sort of tender quality that he has, again, in this movie about, like, yes, you need to grow up and mature. But it's more about becoming confident within yourself as you're about to step into the next portion of your life. And again, we're talking about these two families moving in and all this different stuff. This is a move that isn't as embraced as something like in Totoro. So being able to hit a reset button like the movie kind of does at the end is, is very important. So for this, for this new place that she's going to. So I, I adore it. I think it's, it's still not my favorite. It's the most celebrated Right. But just because it's the most celebrated, like it's on sight and sounds list it won him his Oscar and everything. It doesn't mean that it's not a bad film, but it's not the movie that I go back to all the time. But it's one that every time I do go back to it, I'm surprised that, that I pick up more things. And I'm like, oh, you know, because like, you know, when we have our favorite directors, people are like, oh, yeah, you know, Goodfellas isn't, you know, you, you watch Goodfellas right from Marty and people are like, that's my number one. You're like, really get original. 
And then you see it and you're like, oh, okay, I totally get it. You know, I totally get why it's everyone's like the universal number one pick. It's not mine, but I get it, you know. Um, even though Goodfellas is mine, so I'm just kind of dating myself. I'm, d- I'm dating myself there, but but you know, I was like, wait. but but okay. then like when somebody says it and then you watch it, you reaffirm like yes, okay, I yeah. understand. Mm-hmm. I completely like why wouldn't it be? But yeah, it's it's still a very 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 good movie. Like he doesn't have bad movies to me. Even like Nick, you were talking about Ponyo, and I'm very lesser on Ponyo too. That's far and away. A better movie than any of other directors, sometimes best movies, to be fair, because like mm-hmm. <laughs> their best movies don't even have the the visual language to get emotional reactions out of me, even if the movie doesn't work for me 100 mm-hmm. percent like that one. Does. So this wasn't in my regular rotation growing up of Miyazaki movies, but it was I remember like, the biggest one. I remember it coming out and him winning his Oscar and it just being very popular. But I didn't actually see this one until a little bit later. So I do appreciate it a lot. I think it is his most ambitious film in his filmography because of what he's trying to do. It retains the core of his, you know, his sensibilities as a filmmaker. And he's grappling with themes that he touches on in a number of his films In a similar way to Wes Anderson films, he's really interested in children who could lose their parents or who are in situations without their parents and how they learn from that experience. And I think that is what Chihiro does here in Spirited Away. And what I love about this film is Chihiro. I think that she is one of his best characters She's incredibly complex because she is able to, you know, be a child, right? She's spunky and she is adventurous and she knows when something is amiss. I think the scene when the parents start to gorge themselves on all of this food is such an interesting way to open. I actually think this is his best like opening 25 to 30 minutes across his filmography. It's so interesting how he thrusts us into that world. But when the parents start eating all of that food, it's a gradual thing, right? They're loading up their plates and then like the dad just like grabs another chicken and they just start eating and eating and eating until they become pigs. And you realize that, okay, we are in a fantasy environment here. Like moving from a very real experience of a child moving to all of a sudden her parents are pigs. It shows his ability to play with the real and the unreal at the same time. And what I love about this character, it's like I mentioned at the beginning, like I think a lot of his characters live in the gray and that's so important to show children because when I grew up, I mean, watching the Disney movies, it was like, okay, this girl is a princess and she's inherently good. And even though she might have these good qualities, she needs the prince to come along to save her. Or, you know, you have this other extreme where you have a girl who is adamant and has to be the one to save the day. And it's some like grand feminist message. This is neither of those, right? Chihiro is a character who has positive and negative traits. She's not 
extremely fearless because that's not realistic. Anyone her age would experience fear when encountering these different spirits and these different creature designs, which I think are just incredible. The way that the animation in this film looks, I'm just in awe every time I watch it. I've seen it so many times, but I'm still surprised every time something pops up. And I'm like, how did he come up with this idea? This is brand new. I've never seen anything like this before. But I love her character. And she, yes, feels like a Dorothy or feels like an Alice. But she also just feels like this completely original character in Miyazaki's world. And because of that, you want to follow her throughout this film. And when she experiences fear and sadness, you feel that with her. And I love that. I think that's so powerful and so special to this film. You talk about the opening, which I love. I mean, the first frame we get is of these flowers from her friend saying goodbye, which I think is such, especially for him, interesting way to open a film. And then we meet the parents and she's kind of annoyed at them and, you know, having to move and they're trying to take care of her. So we we learn of adults and parents as these protectors, but then, you know, they start to gorge themselves. We learn about gluttony and there's this slight negative point of view now that we have of them. And then also, you know, when they find this abandoned train station, the dad goes, this looks like an entrance. Let's go. So there's this sense that questioning things is a good thing, but eating food that you're not paying for or, you know, doing these things without asking isn't good. And I think the whole journey that Shahiro goes on you know, we don't see it in the beginning as this potential growth arc for her. But by the end, you realize that she's a different person. Ryan, you say like, oh, is this a dream? Did this actually happen? But, you know, the things she goes through, this this really this crazy journey becomes the story of maturity for her. I also love the inclusion of, you know, when Chihiro gets work and Yubaba takes away her name and renames her Sen. That's also such an important theme and layer here of identity and like keeping your identity and remembering who you are, even going through these crazy experiences that you're going to have in life. Like remembering who you are is so essential. And I love how he introduces that, that theme here and in showing that like you might undergo these scary experiences or you know have to be brave at all these turns but you have to also remember who you are and that's again just such an important lesson for a child to learn i think and for us to learn as adults too as we rewatch this movie it's also a movie going off of that point sophia miyazaki and a lot of people have written great work about this but this is a movie that if you want to interpret it it is a a massive indictment on the abandonment of Japanese culture and the embrace of, of Western culture throughout Japan and the threat of losing identity, losing what makes someone tied to their original roots. And so you think about it from the beginning, they're driving in a, in an Audi, they're in mostly European clothing. They're going to an abandoned theme park. They're gorging their mm-hmm. face 
What does that sound like? That sounds like freaking our society America. being pushed <laughs> on others. Mm-hmm. And then why are they then consumed? Because that's not who they are. That's why when she meets Haku, he's like, eat this. It's from this world. It's not, <laughs> I almost think like it's not saturated in fat. It's of where you belong. And that's why then you can be seen. And yet when she goes to this place, she's the one that stands out because she's not from that world. She's not from the culture. She is not ingrained in it anymore. And, it, and so it reminded me of just a lot of of recent films and, and, and any films, too, when, when you have this East and West clashing within oneself and trying to identify and grow, especially at a young age, because, you know, when when immigrants, children are born out of the place in which they're from, they feel a half step behind when they go back home. And she, by the end of the film, is a step ahead, if not on par with the world that is around it. And then by, by the end, the movie sort of, it almost feels like wipes the, the parents' memory from it, obviously. Like, like they're a lost cause from getting out of this abandonment of their culture. But she now has all these experiences, whether real mm-hmm. or fantastical, to lean on to carry it forward for generations to come. And so I find that really fascinating from a director that has, you know, you can take it all from just the surface level, but above that and under it is his deep love of his country and culture. And that's why I think it hits so much for, especially for people in Japan, but also around here, it's it's this, it is a little bit of a cynical movie when you're looking at just how we come in and destroy things. So it was really interesting watching this, not to be a prisoner of the moment in time stamp this thing but it was interesting watching this and it's interesting watching any film that has to do with japanese culture post watching something like oppenheimer and be reminded of how every time we step somewhere we inherently destroy it sophia and you and i have in the past talked about silence is another film too where we're mm-hmm. throwing our religion and culture from around the world in a place that is so deeply ingrained with who they are and proud of who they are that they're not asking for this. And in this film, it's a missing component of who she really is. It, but it's such a vital component of who she is that she's drawn to it. And by the end, she, she embraces it. To the point where it is, it is nece- it's necessary for life, and to save everyone that's been there for her, that has shown her a kind hand, even if it's something like No Face that almost is trying to destroy her. There's empathy in that, in learning from past mistakes, and not holding grudges and being greedy, like mostly we do. So I, I think that that's it's such a deeply layered metaphor for Miyazaki that yeah I it, it it kind of then reverberates and that's why then a movie like The Wind Rises works so much so they have this sort of tandem I think between them and he has he does have cynicism in his film like Princess Mononoke is a very cynical film too but but this one I think that that's why it works so well for me is that it's a it's a it's a call to arms for his country to embrace who they are 
in everyone that is who they are around the world. I really like that reading. I think that that's really the best way to look at this film, right? And especially in how much he cares about Japanese culture. And, and like we talked about with Totoro, like that was really important to him, right? To have these movies with fantasy aspects, but to keep them Japanese and to have that be the most important thing. I love the idea of this as a double with silence. <laughs> I think that that's, that's a really interesting thing to consider, especially because, you know, in that movie, so much of it is about the political changes in Japan and this whole thing with like trade versus religion and keeping your cultural roots and understanding why people might be pushing back against the way that you're acting in a certain situation. So I really like that that comp as well. But yeah, I think thinking about too, all of the different characters that Chihiro encounters throughout it, it's it's like she's she's being tested almost through all of these experiences. And yeah, like you said, Ryan, she's growing stronger so that by the end of it, it's sort of impossible for her to not retain her Japanese identity throughout that you know she has to you know take what she's learned and now she can be this new version of herself in this new place while still retaining her name and her background and her culture and yeah I think that that's just a really beautiful takeaway from it and something that is embedded throughout the film again there are all these layers these meanings these symbols that we're talking about but on the other hand I wanted this to be a 4D experience. Like I want to be able to smell the food and yeah. feel the steam and bounce when we're in that baby's room. Oh man! And you know it's crying and what a all creepy the character. Like it's my god! It's such a tactile movie. Mm-hmm. We also have to just talk about how he uses trains in his man. movies. Oh, it's, I could watch that alone, just on a loop. <laughs> I mean, talk about meditative. It's, mm-hmm. you know, with Totoro and here we have that one-way train. It's like, how are you going to get back? And she's like, I'll I'll find a way. I also think, too, just even more so than, like, it's kind of great that we partnered these two movies together because you have the environment being such a big key role into the almost the survival of, of the two girls and, and their wonder and discovery in, uh, in My Neighbor Totoro. And in this, I think of... That spirit that she has to clean and it's just dripping with this sludge and mud and guts and, Mm -hmm. you know, and everything. And when she pulls this thing out, you think it's just going to be this one thing. And it just pulls out bicycles and it pulls out tires and it pulls out all this garbage. And it's Miyazaki essentially saying, look at how beautiful this thing was before we started polluting it. Before Mm -hmm. we started just discarding the respect that you can have for beauty and wonder. And you can take it as a, our culture. You can take it as even his own genre of look at the whiz bang pop computer generated graphics. The hand drawns are, are going away because this is at the turn of the tide where Pixar starts coming in and yes, he's working with them, but just because you work with somebody doesn't mean that you're not going to criticize them. So there's a couple of layers there between he's such a, a staunch environmentalist that he can't help but put something in there. And again, it, it blend, blends well with the cynicism, you know, and then you have 
essentially Haku and, and, and others that feel immensely trapped. And that's sort of commentary on imprisonment and people being stuck in, in, in these places. And it, there's, again, so many ideas and I respect it. It's, it's the one that every time, again, I watch it and I'm like, wow, I picked up on that one this time. Or, oh, let me add that to the, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't really move up in the rankings a lot, but it's still like, yes, this movie is great. And it doesn't hit me emotionally that's the one thing is that it's such a thinker and usually thinkers really make me get emotional, especially by the end, because mm-hmm. I'm so invested and I, and we, all three of us are very invested, but I didn't, I don't get emotionally as attached to, to this one as, as even like Totoro because, you know, maybe it's, those are just manipulative moments or maybe it's just because you, you can relate to those moments more, but it, just because there is not that emotion of tears doesn't mean that there's not other emotions. Like I get so it's like a, a, a you feel energized by the end of it. You want to see where she goes next because now she has this. That's the where it's like she's got it all now. Finally at the end, but you as an audience aren't going to find out where she goes because there's the hope that maybe she'll carry on the legacy. So I think yeah, I, I can understand why it, it it doesn't have that lingering effect because. Is that it is that old man? Because then after that, House is about like essentially warfare and and how the bomb and bombings can destroy us. Mix it with the environment in there as well too. You look at the wind rises. That's a drama with a capital D. So yeah, he he turns a page in his career where he he's like, I think I'm done dreaming for a little bit, and I think I really I want you to still be blown away. By these fantastical stories, but there's there's a lot more. He gets a dark boy phase, and it's mm-hmm. it's really great to see him evolve that storytelling. Okay, so if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? Um, original screenplay. Like I don't. That's a good one. I mean, that's taking away from Pedro Almodovar. That's root. two thousand. It would be the two thousand and. That is, we will be taking it away from Pedro. Yep. Wow. Talk that's to her. That's rude. Um, that's, that's really rude, but also they're both very layered screenplays. Yeah. I think I would do that. Yeah. I think yeah. I would because just there's so many themes in this. And I think Pedro has better screenplays to be fair. Something like all about my mother. That's, that's a, a richer screenplay oh, yeah. for me, but yeah, I would, I think original screenplay, I would probably nominate him for a director too, but I think of a win. I think like, yeah, that's such a. He's such a, a great visualist that people, I think, forget about his, his what's on the page and how you have to really create these worlds there before you open them up on the canvas. And this one's definitely one of his more denser works, so that's probably what I would do. Yeah, that's my answer too. Original screenplay. I feel like this is just such a great achievement in writing for him in terms of theme, in terms of structure, character. I love what he's doing here and I want to read a little bit from his director's statement on this movie um, that he gave in 1999 actually so he said I would say that this film is an adventure story even though there's no brandishing of weapons or battles involving supernatural powers however this story is not a showdown between right and wrong it is a story in which the heroine will be thrown into a place where the good and the bad dwell together And there she will experience the world. She will learn about friendship and devotion and will survive by making full use of her brain. 
She sees herself through the crisis, avoids danger, and gets herself back to the ordinary world somehow. She manages, not because she has destroyed the evil, but because she has acquired the ability to survive. He goes on to say much more, but he ends with, I would like to make this film something through which 10-year-old girls can encounter what it is that they truly want. That is so beautiful, and that is perfectly captured in this screenplay. What a man. That's something else that Ebert talked about, was how when movies are made for nobody and everybody, they hit different than when they're made like this, and how Miyazaki made this for young girls. There's just so much more nuance and complexity and... You can really see in that perspective how much he loves Chihiro and how much tenderness and gusto he adds to her story and her journey. So, I, yeah, I really love that quote. I'm going to go for director here. Yes, like I said, this wasn't my favorite, but I think in what he can do, and I think that adds on the screenplay, and I almost want to give it art direction or production design because of just how endless his animation is here. But I will say director because he deserves his own. Yes, he has an animated feature one, but he's going to be a special name for a lot of people and inspire new animators and filmmakers. So I think one other thing that I would recommend people watch along with all of his films is the documentary on Studio Ghibli and him called The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness. This is this came out 10 years ago now, but... It's about his process and being in the studio and watching him. And yeah, you get a lot of that first person perspective and interviews with him that we don't really see a lot of outside of maybe press releases. So it's just another happy way to experience the world that he has created. I need to check that out. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. But that ties nicely into one of our wrap up questions. I think we should each recommend one additional Miyazaki film for the listeners. Oh, I mean, I would hope your listeners have already seen all of his films, but if they want to rewatch or see one for their first time, uh, Kiki's Delivery Service is um, is my favorite Miyazaki film. Talk about a movie about just the innocence and understanding of female characters, but it's also like got this middle section that I think about constantly about how she sort of loses the the kind of fight and spirit of her of her powers and it's so devastating. It's like, it's not, a, these are not, it shouldn't be in an animated film or in really any film. It does. It shouldn't work, but it's, it's this just honestly, anytime I ever feel bad, I put that movie on. And even as Kiki is struggling in that film too, she, she rises above it. Gigi's such an amazing sidekick character, especially if you listen to the dub version, cause you get the great Phil Hartman's, voice there and it's and it's Kristen Dunn's playing Kiki so you know that's that's one of my favorite uh, dubs it's a movie that Nick you talked about wanting to show Totoro to like your children uh like Kiki's delivery service is that movie for me like I want if I have a boy or a girl to see that movie and be able to know that they can express those kinds of feelings even while they are in a pretty isolated and vulnerable state that she is in throughout that movie. It's like she's she's coming of age, but she's doing it by herself almost. And she doesn't have to. And so it's 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 really a sweet movie, but it's also like Totoro, it's got these sad elements to it that 
make it one of my favorite films of all time. Like it's in my top 20 films of all time. Um, and every time I watch it, it's like a, it's just like a great little pick me up. So yeah, you got to watch Kiki. It's, it's great. I love that. I really do need to rewatch. That's another one that I didn't grow up with and kind of wish I did. I'm going to play devil's advocate for <laughs> Miyazaki's darker side. And I'm going to say princess Mononoke. That's fair. I used to not love this movie and I don't know mm-hmm. why because I rewatched it this week and I think it may be in my top 20 like yours Ryan because it just it blew me away. Yes, it's a little gory and yes, maybe his themes being anti-war and the environmentalist things are are in your face, but I think something else we've talked about a lot are these characters' journeys and I think the one that Ashitaka goes on he has to face this demon that's become a part of him and is consuming him and in meeting Mononoke and saving the world and nature it's so grand and I I love how he balances a lot of these ideas of you know accepting his fate which I'm assuming we're we're getting into in the boy and the heron but maturity and identity it is just astonishing, the animation, again. In finding this and being my new favorite Miyazaki, I'm excited in another 10 years or so to rewatch them all and to find a new favorite and developing that love with his films. But I highly, highly recommend this movie. And it's not too dark for kids either, but I think there are a lot of more mature themes and maybe more adult themes in a way than he develops in other films like the ones we talked about today i love that pick i'm gonna be repetitive here i love kiki's delivery service so much this is a comfort movie of mine and my sister and i growing up used to play kiki's delivery service (laughs) so like we would run around on a broom in our house (laughs) If there are photos of that at the Simonella house, I want those on. There are photos. There are photos. I'm going to, I need to text my mom and ask. Patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde. They're coming. Yes. Too. I think Isabel was, my sister was Kiki for Halloween, Halloween one year. Oh. Yeah. But we loved it. And again, my parents were such good sports. My dad had one line that we would make him say when he would get home from work, like he would pull in the driveway and he would have to say, what about the camping trip we were supposed to take this weekend? <laughs> And my mom, we would try to get her to be the owner of the bakery. <laughs> so they they happily would oblige sometimes. But yeah, we we loved Kiki's Delivery Service. I wouldn't be surprised if that VHS tape was no longer functional based on how many times we watched it. But yeah, Kiki and Gigi. We also had a black cat growing up. So it was just, it was perfect. I, I love it. It's... Another one, too, for me, where, like, if I ever have children, this will be one of the first Mm. movies I show them because I just, I love it dearly. It's so good. Ryan, I'm surprised you didn't say Howl's Moving Castle. I I love that movie, but, and and it is the one I I, I do, I go back to probably most, it's one of his most accessible ones, I think. It's it's really a lot of fun, and, and I, it's in my top three, I think. But no, it's always been Kiki. How dare you think that it would be House Moving Castle? That's just that's just rude. I think the minute I saw that movie, I was I was just kind of floored by how 
just how how simple yet effective it is and how it's aged so well. It's one of his earlier works too, and it's just aged impeccably. Yeah. And yeah, I turn into a puddle of goo every time I watch Kiki's delivery service. And it's and and sometimes you gotta be a puddle of goo. Yeah. Like Sophia said, it's it's just one of those movies. But you know, again, I could probably watch these movies in ten years, like you were saying too, Nick. And they could completely change. The list could completely change. Mm-hmm. But I remember watching that. I think I watched it back to back nights when I was in college. And I watch. And now, and it's just so it's on the rotation. Like when I start doing the deep dive, I save it for last. That's the treat. Go out on the high of that movie. I mentioned a question earlier in the pod. It wasn't what's the worst dub you've heard. Oh no. <laughs> it's who would you like to hear dubbing the boy and the heron. Oh. oh, not Jacob Tremblay. I was um, just going to say, <laughs> I sold my stock after The Little Mermaid. No scuttlebutt no scuttle but No, no scuttlebutt. No scuttlebutt. I don't know. That's the thing is I like to be surprised. I kind of have to see the film first. Um, not Tom Holland. Well, do we know how old he's supposed to be? No, and I don't, we don't need to get into like spoilers or what the movie is about. But hearing Christian Bale as Howell just brought back like the dark knight and batman and it was like mm. such a weird parallel okay i have two examples just, just make i have two just make it adam driver and just and just move oh on. my gosh <laughs> Come on. leo adam so if it's like a teenager's voice i would say maybe noah jupe would be oh, good that's good but if it's a little kid alan kim oh, oh. alan bring him back I, I just him. saw theater camp and he's in theater camp and he's oh. so funny in it. And I was just like, Oh, I miss him. I need, I need more movies with Alan Kim. Yeah. If it is like a, I guess an old, like an older, like a middle schooler or something like that, or like a high schooler, I'm going in like you, Nick, I'm going blind as possible into that film. Cause mm-hmm. I do not want anybody spoiling it. And also to spoiler alert to everybody out there. But like, if you go on the Wikipedia page, you need to be careful because the whole plot and the whole, film mm-hmm. is already on oh, no. there so you you gotta yeah. no thank you i didn't read it i just looked at it i was like oh mm-hmm. it's more right. than just like an opening paragraph this is the whole thing and so i was like nope click just get away from that uh lucas hedges would be somebody that i think could be interesting uh in that you know they they like to cast a lot of you know when they do that it's very western stars so and he's still mm-hmm. kind of young enough to do it not not like i want to hear chalamet or anything like that you know but you know <laughs> somebody, somebody with a you know, I think Hedges has got the good kind of voice for voice work like that, and he's worked with like Wes Anderson, so he has, so he knows the kind of mm-hmm. uh, sensibility for you know um, childhood material. I don't know if there are any female characters, but Sorsha, oh. I kept hearing in that Anna Paquin dub. I kept hearing Emma Watson, but <laughs> I'm saying oh, no. Sorsha here. Oh man! <laughs> if there's a mom, Viola Davis. Oh. And if there's a witch, Tilda Swinton. Oh. If there's a if there is a mom, Julianne Moore should do it. Yeah, that's great. Oh my god. Like oh, I would actually cry harder if Julianne was the mom. Yeah, because a lot of those mm-hmm. characters are very soft spoken. Like the parents are very soft spoken. So True. I True. think she would really work. I just love the if there's a witch, Tilda. <laughs> <laughs> Our favorite. It's she's contractually obligated by Hollywood. Mm-hmm. My girl. That's in her contract. <laughs> yeah, she's fighting for that in the strike. <laughs> well, what a way to end this episode and to wrap up 
Miyazaki, the weird, the witchy. (laughs) (laughs) The delightful. Just, I mean, we can't praise these two movies enough. Check out all of his filmography, dubbed and subbed, now that we know, on Max in the U.S. We love Miyazaki. Can't wait to talk about him again and to see his film coming in the next months, hopefully soon after TIFF. I'm hoping for like a wide release. Yeah, I can't wait to see his latest film. And there are also some good Miyazaki physical media packages and collections out there. So if you do love his films, highly recommend buying them because we can never fully count on streaming. But to wrap up, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. It was wonderful having you back. We have to ask you our our question. What is one thing that you're wild for right now? This time, Nick and I will agree on this. This is the thing that I've been wild. Was I ever wild uh, about? And and that is Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. This is the movie I've been like thinking about like the last two weeks. I think it's an incredible achievement of cinema. I've been pulling out the 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 insiders and the Malcolm X's and the Lawrence of Arabia's and uh, you know the Wind Rises and all these different films like you know watching Schindler's List and watching, you know, Scorsese do, you know, like the Irishman and, and Goodfellas. Cause there are all these, these movies about these complicated men in these, these places in time, Amadeus too. And all those movies have something in common. They're all great. And we get them every couple of years where they feel like they reinvent the biopic but they also reinvent the director but they also have these incredible central performances uh i i can't get over the score hoyt van hoyneman is a god the sound design if anybody ever complains about nolan sound design he basically like just dropped this movie on your doorstep and said suck it it sounds great uh the production design of los almos i've been just wondering how they 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 did that the 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 non CGI use of the bomb, Killian Murphy's face, Killian Murphy's eyes, Killian Murphy's jawline, Killian Murphy's hat, <laughs> the, the, the 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 pipe, all of it. Josh Hartnett in those glasses, holy shit! You know <laughs> what a man. Like I mean, incredible. Nice to see Robert Downey Jr. working uh, in something I like in a long time. Emily Blunt and Florence Pugh. Showed mm-hmm. up for a couple of days, got a paycheck. You know, there's, you know, Rami Malik actually giving a good performance. Like, this movie's got everything. Josh Peck hits the button, and you're like, damn, I forgot how good looking Josh Peck was. You know, and then. A glow Yeah, up. David Krumholtz coming in after, like, being, like, in the Santa Claus for, like, the last 45 years and being like, I own this. You know, Jason Clark being a bastard. Dane DeHaan being a bastard. Mm-hmm. Casey Affleck portraying himself as a bastard like there's a lot of great stuff in this movie it's 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 Nolan's most rich film that he's had in a long time Sophia has scolded me of saying that this should be my number one I think it's slowly becoming that and it's it's gonna Mm -hmm. get there so you know she she's got her own prophecy that she's reading about my my ranking of Nolan movies um but uh yeah I can't I can't 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 stop thinking about it i've seen it twice i want to see it again i want to see it in imax i actually was supposed to see it last tuesday in imax but the sound uh woofer or the the bass uh just got destroyed in my imax so it's there was this popping sound the entire time so i had to get the refund and i had to leave i was very sad 
But uh, yeah, I'm probably going to see this at least one more time in theaters. I can't wait for a 4K. Might be talking about maybe the best film of the decade. Yeah. Wow. wow. But but okay. Tar also exists too. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. but they both also loved, loved also Tar. a great double bill, I believe. I think that Lydia Tar would eviscerate Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. Yes, I know this from at least my experience. I don't know what, about you two, and I did listen to y'all show about it. But it's like a horror movie at times. Mm-hmm. I was I've been like scared ever since walking out of it. It's kind of shook me. So yeah. Oppenheimer, go see it. I know everybody else is already seeing it. And try to see it, if you can, 70 millimeter IMAX. If you can, just in an IMAX, experience it. Because it feels like with this and Barbie, we're, we're experiencing something really special right now. And they're both great movies. So you can't, can't beat that. I agree. And happy birthday, Christopher Nolan. Yes. On the day of recording. Yes, exactly. And on the day of recording, too, both Barbie and Oppenheimer just dominated the box office again. Haunted Mansion who? Love it. Well, again, Ryan, thank you so much for being here. This was so much fun to talk about Miyazaki's films. Tell everyone where they can find you. Well, you can find me on whatever app that monster Elon Musk wants to call it nowadays. Twitter X, um, Mm -hmm. X Machina, whatever it's called. Also on Instagram and Letterboxd at Ryan McQuaid 77. You can find all my work for the most part over at awardswatch.com. Over there, uh, I do uh, uh, reviews and interviews and, um, you know, top 10 lists, a bunch of stuff over there. Uh, My latest review was the film that I just talked about, um, Oppenheimer. And one of the co-hosts here wrote the Barbie review, and that is Miss Sophia Simonello. We do the Awards Watch podcast, and that's weekly, and those release on Monday. And that's, you know, our weekly stuff where we... Talk about our latest releases, the news going on, do some top fives, listener questions, a bunch of different stuff. We are going to be doing a 1993 retrospect uh, that'll be out by the time of this recording is released. And then also over there, I am doing a show with uh, my co-host Jay Ledbetter. Uh, it's called Director Watch, where we break down director's filmographies. Right now, we're in the middle of doing our Todd Haynes movie series in anticipation for uh, May, December. And then after that, we will be talking about the films of Denis Villeneuve in anticipation of potentially <laughs> Dune 2. But that's been a lot of fun. We've had Sophie on. Nick, we'll get you on. Don't worry. Villeneuve. Well, Nick, you'd be perfect, perfect for Villeneuve. Yeah, you'd be yeah. perfect for Villeneuve. We'll have to figure out an episode to get you on. Love that. But it's it's always a pleasure being here. And this didn't run to the point where we have to split it into two episodes. So that's that's the goal of this episode you know of what i had to do yes well we'll have you back again i guess ryan i guess is is rude uh because you will because we already laid the seeds in here i'll be back for marty in in two months and i'll then lay the seeds for whatever movie i want to come back on for then later it'll be a recurring bet who doesn't have a delayed movie exactly spike lee's next oh my god is that the (laughs) that's already is that the musical the crazy musical that he wants to do like yeah, I would love to see that. Joker 2? Yeah. Hell no. Thank you. <laughs> well, talking about new releases and your guys' reviews, I'll be reviewing Red, White, and Royal Blue soon. That's right. And that we will be covering on our next episode, our summer release roundup. We'll be talking about all the summer movies, potentially Haunted Mansion and Jamie Lee Curtis and all the others that have done either pretty well at the box office or on streaming 
and you mentioned theater camp earlier in the pod and i'm excited to see that and talk about it too so we thank you for being here for listening to our pod find us on instagram twitter and tiktok at oscar wild pod and bonus content including photos of sophia and isabel as kids <laughs> playing kiki's delivery service the ten dollar tier is for those yes, the for tier. those photos <laughs> oh, god at, at patreon.com slash oscar wilde thank you all for listening we'll see you next time